right. So welcome to the Bailey. This is the show that steals content ideas from other podcasts. I'm your host, Yassine Maschot. And today's topic is going to be the story of Jad Sleeman. So Jad, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. You're still in Philly, right? No, I'm in New York. I moved back uh, up here in May. So I've been up here a couple months. Okay, cool. Yeah. How long have you been in New York now? Uh, I've been back since May. I uh, actually, because I moved to Philly for that job mm-hmm. that I had lost. So I'm like, all right, I mean, just go back to New York. It's more stand up up here anyway. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Uh, so uh, I heard your story on uh, Block Then Reported. Uh, that's where I first heard about it. Uh, and uh, I was curious to talk to you more and understand more of your story. How about you started off by giving like a background on like where you came from and like what kind of jobs you uh, you did along the way? I don't want it to sound like a resume listing, but I think it's fair that you have a relatively unusual trajectory. Yeah, I got it. Well, I always wanted to be a, a reporter. Uh, my folks were not too crazy about that. Not a lot of Arabs in journalism. There's that one guy. You know, yeah, so they weren't really too thrilled about it. Um, so I was like, well, I got to kind of figure out my own way to do this. But you were born in the United States, right? Yeah, I was the only one born here. I was born in uh, Detroit. Okay. And your parents are? Uh, uh, Lebanese. Lebanese. One is Catholic, right? Oh, no, neither of them are. It's just the, I think uh, Jesse just misunderstood that joke about. <laughs> it is a weird thing. Muslims send their kids to Catholic school. It's like, uh just a bizarre thing that happens in America. I think because they're like the closest to Muslim, you know? Yeah, there's there's like a weird symbiotic relationship between Muslims and Christians, where, especially like on the socially conservative side. It's true. I have this joke that I've been doing that, that works really well, where I'm like, Christians, if you want to understand Islam, it's like you took, it's like if you took the Bible and then you actually fucking read it. <laughs> Same shit. Yeah. <laughs> so both your parents were Muslim, right? Yeah. Did you, uh, uh, like, were they especially, like, observant Muslims? Not really. I mean, the Lebanese are kind of like, they're like how Christians are Christian, you know? It's mm-hmm. like on the holidays and shit. But for the most part, I don't know, maybe go to mosque like twice a year. If okay. And do you consider yourself a Muslim? I don't know. I don't know if I really believe in anything. I do, but mostly out of spite. Like, if anybody asks, I'll say I'm Muslim. Just because people don't want you to be, you know? Yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean by they don't want you to be? Well, I don't know. I'm, maybe it's just from where I grew up, but I, it's still in my head that people don't like Muslims and people mm-hmm. are like kind of, I don't know. It feels like I grew up in West Virginia, so it's not a very you know cosmopolitan place. So I don't know. For, it's more out of spite than any kind of religiosity. I'm just like, yeah, whether you like it or not, I'm Muslim. It's like a way of standing on principle in a way? Yeah. Okay. I think so. So you, uh, you were born in Detroit. When you were growing up, how is that different from like your typical American story or typical Im- immigration story? Uh, I mean, I, I grew up in West Virginia because that's where my folks moved. It's like a visa thing. Like it was like easier to you go to like an underserved area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's weird. If you, Are you first generation or are you? I was born in Morocco. I lived there for 10 oh, years and uh, my parents came here through the uh, visa diversity lottery. Nice. Oh, oh it's very lucky. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just remember like my folks were like scared all the time, and then so, so were scared we. Of like, what? Just like there's quite a lot of racism, and like really like like kind of in your face racism in West Virginia, and so especially after nine eleven, it was just like they're always like terrified of like any, ever being in a position where like they could be vulnerable to 
basically to Americans, to people. That's why, like, you know, it's, it's, I do the joke, like, it's, why are Arabs always doctors, cab drivers, or owning 7-Elevens? It's because those are jobs you can't get fired from. So they're all, <laughs> they just kind of have this whole feeling of, like, you got to be the best at everything. You got to be, like, unassailable because it's, like, all these, in their minds, and, and of course, it's their experience, so many people kind of want nothing but for you to fail. Mm-hmm. So it was very, like, kind of hyper-vigilant. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying they're probably fucked up by the war. You're talking about the Lebanese Civil War? Yeah. I mean, I didn't recognize it growing up, but, like, as an adult now, and I've been to a bunch of wars, it is, like, the whole thing of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is kind of bullshit. Like, sometimes it makes you, like, insane. Yeah. Sometimes it gives you, like, anxiety disorders. That makes sense. Like, I always thought that that was a facile, I guess, trope to say, oh, it's okay if you go through adversity. You'll become better at the end. But sometimes you end up being fucked up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, did you experience anything, uh, like that kind of adversity, like when you were growing up or racism in West Virginia? Oh yeah. Like what? Yeah. Cause you'd be like the only guy I re- I do a joke about this cause it's just so absurd. Like they, this, I remember like this one kid in school was like, I was like, you should like pick the pepperonis off of the pizza, you know? Mm-hmm. I know about that. <laughs> and the kid was like, why are you doing that? And I was like, oh, I'm Muslim. We don't eat uh, pepperoni. And he spit in my face and and the joke is, like, this is before 9-11. He's just like, I saw what they did to pizza. I fucking knew these people were no good. <laughs> wow, okay. It's You know, I mean, it's that kind of stuff. I was never, like, put in a hospital or anything, but it's just casual, just people fucking with you. And then my parents, like, when my dad went back to Lebanon, like, somebody was, like, spreading rumors, oh, he's over there to train, like, Hezbollah, he's over there. And meanwhile, he's there, over there because, like, our grand, my grandfather, his father is dying. You know, but then that's what, that, well, that's one of the things when people talk about racism. It's like, I, like Arabs in West Virginia is like, it's a level of racism that I don't think people think knows still exists. Like it's in your face, or at least it was back then. Hmm. So I grew up in the, the DC area and I never experienced anything like that. Uh, I mean, sometimes people would call me like, uh, like sand nigger or something like that, but that that's about it. And it was kind of just pulling from the palette of jokes that you like race based jokes that you would levy at someone regardless of their race. Like, you know, whatever race they were, you just pick a slur. Yeah. Did you, uh, so for me, the, the hard part was like when I moved to the United States, I had to kind of get assimilated and get situated in this new country. And that, that proved to be, I think like the biggest source of challenge. Do you think that you've had a, an advantage because you were born here and you were inculcated from the beginning? Yeah, I don't think so. I think, Probably, definitely, because I think growing up, like, I was, I don't even think I really spoke English that well, because my parents didn't speak English that well mm-hmm. when I was young. Like, I think I almost, I want to say they were thinking about putting me in, like, special ed, like, early on, so I couldn't read, like, and figure it out. But after, like, grade school, I think it all evened out, you know? As soon as, like, the language stuff got down and you learn how to talk to people. Yeah. Definitely, I mean, definitely assimilated, like, far faster than my parents did. Yeah. So, um... You decided to join the military, right? Yeah, the Marines. What was the motivation behind that? It was, well, I want to do journalism. I want to kind of do it on my own. And the Marines specifically because they had like the best program for that, for uh, combat correspondent. So your motivation was journalism from the beginning? Oh, yeah. Why? Why did I want to be a journalist? I don't know. I think I like got it in my head that it would be like an interesting life, which is sort of true. I mean, you do like... You do different stuff every day. You go different places, especially like what I started off doing was just like covering conflict. It's like 
I always felt like, oh, working in an office is like death. You know, you just go in, you kind of like, you imagine people aging in place, you know, like going to the same place over and over again. And I thought journalism would be a cool, just a way to have like a, a rich life, which I think it, it is actually. Was there anyone that inspired you towards that route? Uh, there was this journalist, I think he's still in journalism, uh, Kevin Sipes, who used to do like uh, war reporting in like the early 2000s. Very early, like, internet war reporting. Like, he was one of the first guys who, it was like a decade before Vice, he was, like, going into places just by himself mm-hmm. and using, like, satellite uplinks and shit. And basically, he pioneered, like, what war journalism would become, like, a decade later, which is just one-man band. One guy goes in, you know, maybe has, like, a local helper or something that they hire. Uh, but it, so he basically just abandoned the whole, like, huge studio production of like sending a famous Anderson Cooper or somebody over to the war zone Mm -hmm. to get like some pitch uh, on a very superficial level. So is it fair to say that going through the route through the Marines for journalism, that's not normal? Uh, No, not really. I don't think there's many people that maybe back in the day. That's not the usual route, right? No. Yeah. And you knew that from the beginning? Yeah. Uh, but for my, I, I kind of wanted to do, com- I kind of wanted to do war reporting. So it made sense in my case, I think, to like have that under my belt. Okay. Did going to the Marines help you with journalism? Did that help advance it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I came out with like photos and videos and articles and stuff that I'd written while I was in that were pretty good. Like a lot of the stuff that you produce, like working as a combat correspondent, you're in the military. It's just kind of like fluff and propaganda or whatever. But you can get away with like doing some real stories if you play your cards right and kind of find stories that won't like upset the military. So I had like clips that I could show people. I'm like, oh, this is reporting from Africa. This is reporting from Europe. Of course, photos and videos, it's kind of like a technical skill. You can showcase mm-hmm. that without any kind of nod to like, oh, it's, you know, the editorial or lack of editorial independence. Can you give an example of when the editorial independence clashed? Oh, all the time. I mean, I'll say this, this one, basically what I figured out how to do. So I remember I was reporting in like efforts in Uganda. I was like embedded with these guys who were training them to fight Kony, uh, training the Ugandan military. And basically I had to get like the officer in charge of the company to approve a story. I had to get an officer at Marine Forces Africa in Germany to approve it, I had to get someone from the State Department to approve it. And what I would do is I would just tell two of them that the uh, I would tell each one that the other two had already approved it. <laughs> and then they'd be like, "All right, cool." So then, what you uh, come out with is just like a normal news story about this is what they're doing. Okay, how did you, your role as a combat correspondent mesh in with the, the rest of the Marines? Like, were you separate unit, or did you have the same basic training? Yeah, you go through basic training and combat training, and then afterwards it is a bit weird because you, I would just get attached to units, and nobody would know who I was or who I worked for, or like. Uh, so you'd be kind of like a roving, yeah, uh, individual. Yeah. Okay. It, and remarkably independent for like how low ranking you are. Like you could kind of do whatever you wanted, uh, just because nobody knew what to do with you. And uh, how long were you in the Marines for? So, uh, four years. All right. And the, what happened after that? Like, did you, did you maintain the thirst for journalism after that four year stint? Oh yeah. I went straight to uh, Temple in Philadelphia for my journalism uh, undergrad. And 
all you know the clips that I had from the Marines, I used those to get an internship at the Daily News and did stories for them, stories and photos for them, my whole undergrad. And as soon as I graduated, I went to Syria, I guess it was in 2014, to do some reporting on the on the rebels out there, freelance. And then after that, and then doing that work in Syria got me the gig at Stars and Stripes, where I covered uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And Stars and Stripes is like the official, what's, what is it? Stars and Stripes is strange. It's like an old, old, like it's basically a newspaper that is editorially independent. So nobody, the Pentagon doesn't have any say in what we print, but it's it's basically something to cover the military for the military members who are overseas. So it's like a newspaper that you, if you're in Iraq, it's the newspaper you'll get. If you're in like Azerbaijan on some remote base, it's the newspaper you'll get. How does it stay editorially independent? It's mandated by Congress to be. Okay. So it's like a, yeah, it's a very old thing. Like it, it started, and it's sort of a weird thing where like, there's no real need for it anymore because soldiers can just get news from like their phones or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of anachronistic, I think is the word, anachronistic. Yeah. <laughs> like it's something that made more sense back when soldiers would get literally no news when they were like out in the field somewhere. You could, so this is something that they could still get. And so it was, it's like, you know, like soldiers and shit, they still have to vote. They still have to like know what's going on. It's, so it's part of like their civil rights is to kind of, get information from like the rest of the world. So it's like, that was, the, that's the rationale for it. It's kind of gone away now that like you have internet everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we could do, we could do real stories. We're constantly doing stories that pissed off the Pentagon actually. Did your parents have any objection to you joining the Marines? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like how, like what? Uh, are you nuts? Like you're going to get killed. You're like the usual. I mean, it was like the, apocalyptic for them and this was after 9-11 yeah it was 2012 right so my understanding is that the military still i guess like within muslim countries there's kind of like a distrust of the u.s military yeah for potentially good reason yeah did your parents express that yeah i mean i think they're more scared for me personally than any kind of like political thing right uh how would you describe your own politics generally uh i'm pretty left-wing dude i mean i think like if I could, like Elizabeth Warren is like my candidate, essentially. Okay. Like I'm kind of I a lot of the identity politics stuff I, I think is like kind of dehumanizing and weird, but economically I'm a left wing dude, and I genu- genuine generally I think people should be left alone for the most part. Did the uh, did your politics clash while you were in the military? No, not really. The military is like very diverse actually. I think it's like something that a lot of uh, it's sort of like a misconception. It's America has like one of the most diverse militaries on the planet. Mm-hmm. When you say diverse, do you mean racially or, or what? Racially, ideologically, economically. Like mm-hmm. you really, it's, it's one of those things where you like you, I don't know. It's like more of a melting pot than like the rest of the country in a weird way. Yeah. I've noticed that I, I've been around like a bunch of service members and it is weird how different they are or they tend to be. Uh, so, but so when you pivoted to, I guess, journalism school in temple, was there, a distrust of your background from coming in from the military? No, I think, I mean, the, the only weird thing is you're just a few years older than everybody. Mm-hmm. And you've spent four years in the, so I was like 23 and my roommates were like 19. But that was like the extent of, of like the difference. So then you were employed by WHYY. And was that your first in, in public radio? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I didn't even apply for the job. I was like applying for other like podcast jobs in New York, like different podcast houses. And then my boss, I guess, was looking for like it's hard to recruit people for public radio. You end up like getting just the same type of people a lot of the time. Like it's. What do you mean by the same type of people? Just like boring, like white pussies. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know. Like you just get. The way I frame it, it's like, you know, like when, when NPR runs a story about like racist emojis and it's the people who don't roll their eyes at that, <laughs> that's kind of like who gets recruited. Right. So did you feel like a culture class being part of that industry? Yeah. I mean, well, I think what changed is like, you know, I was in journalism for six, seven years before Trump was elected. And then it was like after Trump got elected, a lot changed in journalism in the U.S. A lot of people who probably should have been activists instead became journalists because it became mm-hmm. like this way to like, you know, you feel all this impotence during the Trump years. The left can't really do anything. Trump's saying wild stuff. And journalism became like a way to fight back. Uh, yeah. So a lot of people who do not really have the philosophy of a journalist where you're like, I want the facts. I want to figure out what's going on. I hate everybody. Everybody's full of shit. Instead, you have people that come in there with a mission, you know, they're like fighting against something. Yeah, that's generally the impression of public radio. It's, it's a bunch of Oberlin grads who want, who are really just activists who want to masquerade as journalists. What do you think happens to the real, quote unquote, real journalists? I mean, I watched it happen in real time. What happens is like, either you get, either, I think the vast majority of them just stay quiet and keep their heads down because there's so few jobs in journalism that when you see deviations from objectivity, when you see, you know, things like newsrooms saying, like, we need to become anti-racist. And it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, like objectivity to an old school journalist, objectivity is anti-racist. To the new school, that's not enough. You got to like actively kind of do this calculus of, well, reporting this detail or this detail contribute to X stereotype and Y conservative narrative. Like it's this weird, they're actually very similar now to, to like military officers I worked for when I was a combat correspondent, like this obsession with like messaging and what will a story make people think has now become like a huge uh, kind of part of decision-making in a lot of newsrooms. And the old school journalists that recognize that as a departure from objectivity, like it's, it's okay, it's noble or whatever, but it's not objective. It's messaging. It's, Why do you say it's noble? Oh, well, because they, uh, I mean, they, it's not like, they're not doing it to like make more money. They're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do, you know? So it's like, how can you argue with, you know, it's like, how can you be anti-anti-racism, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's well-meaning, I think, is what I'll say. Like, I, I don't I'm, just to be charitable. Like, I don't think they're. It's, it's not as bad as like, if it bleeds, it leads. We got to like push violent stuff out because it's going to make money. So it is noble in the sense that like they're like, well, I don't want to contribute to racism. I don't want to contribute to sexism. I don't want to report stuff that like gives Santis points or whatever. But the end result of that is bias, uh, deeply biased reporting. It's reporting like where. Um, like right wing bias, I think is very obvious and, and on your face. It's, it's somebody like very obviously like twisting the facts to make you make a decision for you. Left wing bias is more like bias by omission. It's like what details don't get reported. 
what angles <laughs> yeah. don't get reported. Do you know about the Ann Coulter rule? No. You, uh, so anytime there's like a mass shooting or anything, uh, whenever like the race of the perpetrator is not mentioned, then you can kind of guess that it's not a white person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which depressingly tends to be very accurate. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately there, there are, and I know you don't come from journalism, but there, there is like a, there's kind of the pre-Trump journalists who are in it. Their devotion is to objectivity. Their worst fear is getting a fact wrong. And then there's the post-Trump journalists who a lot of them are, their worst fear is saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Is this something that, you know, you see with the New York Times, with Reuters, their trans reporting, so many people attacking them, not because there's anything wrong with their reporting, but because their reporting is ammunition for like a political, could be ammunition for like a political enemy. Yeah, it's such a weird argument to make. You're, it's like, you're telling the truth, but please don't say it because it could be used by someone else. And there's a level, I don't know if you agree with this, but there's a level of patronization going on where like the audience are dumb fucks and it's like, we can't feed them the wrong line. Otherwise they might think the wrong thing. Right. Yeah, dude. It's, I, I call it like, it's this belief in, again, with the new vanguard of journalists, it's this belief in a type of mind control that works on everybody, but you, <laughs> it works on all these dumb fucks out there. They're like, I remember, you know, I, the, the lack of respect for the audience is astounding and nobody sees it. Like I did this story about like, um, like early criminology used to be based all on like appearance. They thought that like the way you looked made you more likely to commit crimes. Mm-hmm. And so there was this push to like, what if we did plastic surgery on prisoners and made them more attractive? Could that keep them out of jail? This happened all across the United States. And I talked to this anthropologist who studied it and he was like, he was obviously like a chicken and egg problem. Like rich people just looked better because they had more health care. They ate better food. They didn't like work outdoors in the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was like, we kind of fucked that up. It was like a chicken and egg thing. And his point was that like he studied prisoners and he'd also studied like CEOs. And he's like, the CEOs all looked like clones of each other. They were all tall white dudes with perfect skin who are in shape, you know. And he he made that, said that in order to make the point that like money makes you look better. Like if you just have a lot of money, you can take care of yourself. An editor on our show was like, we can't say that. He's saying that white people are better looking than people of color. (laughs) It's like, it's stupefying. Like you don't even know how to respond to that. Yeah. And it's also bringing in, I guess, like your own bias, right? Yeah. Because because if the anthropologist doesn't have to say that the CEOs are white and the criminals are black, right? It's the editor that's like, oh, wait, I know which groups this maps onto, right? Well, no, he did say they were white. He was like, they're all tall white dudes who were like, you know, with perfect teeth. And he's like, yeah, of course they're uniform. They all have a lot of money. Like that's like they, they're able to take care of themselves. Uh, but it's like the, like the mind that you have to have, you're like, okay, how can this possibly become a negative message? It's like, oh, if this guy is saying that all these CEOs look the same and they're all white and they're all good looking, he, you know, by the transitive property is saying that like people of color are uglier than white people. Like it's insane the level of calculus these people do trying to figure out what will a story make people think. Right. But think about it from the other, uh, from another angle. If, uh, if you say, if you assume that systemic racism is real, if you assume that it has deleterious effects on, on people that it impacts like people of color, Uh it's not controversial to say, you know, it leads to bad outcomes, like bad health outcomes, 
and potentially makes you uglier because you just have to deal with much more bullshit. Like, like environmental racism or uh, ac- lack of access to healthcare, or whatever, or lack of education or higher, like more dangerous jobs, like more workplace injuries, whatever you want to say, that's a constellation of negatives and it's going to have an impact, right? So just by virtue of saying like this, this group is going to look better than this other group, you could say because of systemic racism, right? And it, there's like this weird dance where you have to say that systemic racism exists, but also has no negative consequences on the demographics that it that it hurts, right? I mean, this is this is what you this is the trap you fall into when you abandon objectivity, when you start trying to make messaging like fix you when you try to make like your messaging like uh, coincide with your ideology. Is you run into problems like this, where it's like practically infeasible. Mm-hmm. You can't believe both these things can't be true at the same time. Yeah, I don't know where that would lead you. And I think I would push back a bit on uh, whether or not this is well-meaning because it does have to assume that the audience are dumb fucks. And yeah. if we're going through like the trope of the journalist, like the the isolated uh, Oberlin grad, that seems mm-hmm. to be a reflection of kind of like this upper-class uh, ivory tower outlook. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think they're... They're wrong, and it's this type of thinking is why there's such an immense distrust in American media. But they think they're doing the right thing. Right. It's kind of the point that I'm making. And that kind of like, in their minds, there's like a selflessness to it. But one of the problems is that they have to assume, like, you can't, you're not going to have this uh, phenomenon that we're talking about without an aspect of it assuming that the audience are idiots. Oh, 100%. And I don't think that's, that's not going to, that can't. That can't happen unless you have an elevated version of yourself. And do you think that's related to their position and their class position? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's it depends. I mean, I think it's more like like even more so than class that may be the case. But it's like it's more like isolation. Like these people don't have any social relationships with people they disagree with. Mm-hmm. Like they don't have friends who are. You know, they may have friends that have more money than them or less money than them, but they don't have friends that significantly differ in their cultural or political beliefs at all. So, you know, sometimes like, you know, we would edit stories from, you know, people in the newsroom would come to our show. Our show is like a small team, so we were less like ideologically nuts. And also the, the head of the team is German, so she's like a bit immune to like the American cultural excess. Mm-hmm. So occasionally we'd have like stories come in from like the newsroom to be like edited to come on our show. And not only would the bias be astounding in the stories, the reporters themselves would be astounded when we pushed back and we were like, Hey, you've not reported all of these angles. Like, why isn't this in the story? Why is this like, what's an example? The the best one I can think of is like, it was a story about like a, uh, there was a hospital in Philadelphia that, served the poor for the most part. And it was famous or as like a maternity uh, ward. I don't know what the exact, I guess maternal health is like, mm-hmm. it was like a lot of like low-income people relied on it for when they were having kids. And the hospital was closing down and activists were up in arms about like, this is going to be disastrous for black and brown people, for poor people. It's where, because they're going to lose this hospital that they rely on. Well, what happened after the hospital closed is basically everything got consolidated into like a bigger hospital slightly farther away. And the bottom line is like infant and mother mortality went down. 
So like this thing that kind of activists thought this was going to be a disaster, it actually saved lives. Mm-hmm. Less people, it, and it's kind of just simple. It's just if you have more stuff in a concentrated facility, it's like, oh, do you need like a crazy, I have no idea what they use, MRI fetus machine? Yeah, it's uh, one floor up instead <laughs> of you have to go across town. Right. You know, yeah. it's just consolidating resources. Mm-hmm. This detail was nowhere in the story. So like to the point where like we had to ask like what changed, what go through, like what are the differences pre and post this hospital clothing? And this thing that like would have been so interesting to report, like because it's so counterintuitive, you expect a hospital for the poor closes, you expect things to get worse, but then here's a surprise. Reality throws you a surprise, but that surprise did not conform with their ideology their expectations of what reality had to be. So it was gone. It was just excised from the story. What excuse did you get for why it was excised? If you can't talk about it. I can't believe she said this, but this was her actual words. She was like, this group, like the activists that we're talking about, don't like that. We'll get upset about that. And I, my response to her, I was like, you're a fucking journalist. Like it was insane. And, but, and then, and now this person, by the way, I think I don't, well, I don't know how many people listen to this, but like that my, my issue with this is I don't want to single out one person. Yeah, that's because fair. literally so many of these people were like this. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's like I, even editors, like some editor had, had, you know, she had put like a detail in a story, like one in 10 Philadelphians positive for COVID. And I emailed her back and I was like, this is wrong. Like our, you've misunderstood something in the data. Like the, our hospitals would implode if this happened. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, I, I checked it with the Department of Health and they checked off on it. They said it was fine. I was like, they're not your editors. They're not journalists. It's, you have to look at the data yourself and figure it out. And it turned out, yeah, she had like misinterpreted some set of data or whatever. And, but her response to me, and this is an editor, and again, not to name her because literally all of them would do this, was like, well, you know, people fuck up shit all the time. There's all kinds of nonsense out there. Who cares? Okay. Like I had one one time, dude. I I was covering like the this this Department of Health briefing on COVID, and like I did a story about it. You can actually find it. It's like basically the the health commissioner for Philly called like two second waves of COVID coming in the summer, neither of which happened. Mm-hmm. Like there was no data for them. Nothing supported them. And he was like in the middle of like warning us about like a second wave of COVID coming in. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the numbers. And they've not changed. Like its tests have gone up, positives have gone up exactly one to one. And I'm like, hey, I'm talking to my editors. I'm like, hey, uh, I don't think any of this is true. And their response was, okay, put out a story, but just take out the parts that aren't true. How would that work? What would be left? Nothing. I mean, it's like it's like like it didn't concern them at all that you know this health commissioner is misleading the city. Yeah. They're just like, oh, take out the parts that aren't. Don't press him on it. Don't ask him, like, hey, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I remember the dynamics there where, like, pushing back on public health authorities was seen as anathema. Like, you're not supposed to do that because it, it would undermine the, the trust in the system. And I noticed yeah. that with the weird uh, – I mean, I have some, like, my own issues with Ron DeSantis, but there was, like, kind of like a thirst to find anything negative about how Florida was handling COVID. Like, you needed to figure out something that was bad. Yeah. Because it needed to reaffirm the priors, right? And no talk at all about like our side of it. I mean, this was in Pennsylvania. I don't know if you know this, but like our health secretary, uh, Rachel Levine, like took her own mother out of a nursing home Mm -hmm. and put her in a hotel 
at the same time as like they were instructing like you know nursing homes and PA and I think New York did the same thing where they were like no you have to accept COVID patients after they were released from the hospital which like the DeSantis example he emptied nursing homes that was like one of the you know not to like sing his praise not to like I don't want to dick ride the guy, but that was a good move that he made. It's like he was like, oh, these places are death traps. we got to get people out of nursing homes. It's okay to say good things about bad people. <laughs> like even yeah. if you think – like that, I, I noticed this trend where it's like you can't say anything positive about someone that is supposedly bad because it would like undermine the whole message. It's, it's part of the point that you're making. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just saying that I don't know the entirety of his like COVID response. I don't live in Florida. Right. But that was like but, one move where I was like, oh, this makes sense. None of – we're not doing it and it's leading to like – a lot of unnecessary and like horrific suffering. And it's like, nobody even pressed him on it. Like it's the same dynamic of like, okay, the public health guy for the city of Philadelphia is obviously lying, but nobody has any interest in pressing him on it. Just like this nursing home thing is like, obviously like it makes no fucking sense. Like everyone's staying home to stop the spread of COVID getting to old people. And then you're putting old people recovering from COVID back into fucking nurse. Mm-hmm. Like, Prima facie, it makes no fucking sense. But nobody questions it because it's it's like our side. Yeah, you say the problem is like lack of objectivity, but how would that? How would you start fixing journalism? I don't know. I think it's like a. I think it's kind of a runaway thing right now because now journalism has become synonymous. I think with advocacy and advocacy. So mm-hmm. the lines have broken down into like, you know, it's this problem of how do you recruit people that don't roll their eyes at like which emojis are racist. So now, if, you, if you're uh, someone who values objectivity, if you're a skeptical person, if you're basically a journalist, someone who has the philosophy of a journalist, and you see what all these outlets are putting out, and you see the bias in it, <laughs> it's, you're not going to want to even join them. Like, there's no mechanism to attract real-deal journalists. So it's, just, it's like um, the people who I think would have been who are more old school minded, still valuing objectivity, still have the philosophy of journalist versus advocate, they're increasingly going and becoming uh, kind of independent outlets. A lot of them are like starting their own stuff. Mm-hmm. There's sub stacks, there are podcasts and all this stuff. Right. I don't think Substack and like uh, other, other venues would be as popular if it wasn't for this, uh, I guess, losing trust in media. Yeah. So it doesn't seem sustainable. This kind of like navel gazing, inward looking, like let's only bolster the stories that make us feel good. Like I, there's a bunch of NPR podcasts that I used to love that I just stopped listening to entirely because it was just getting grading. Like on the media is a a great example of that. I mean, it's a big problem. Like I used to have to, when I still worked at the station, I would, you know, in pitch meetings, I would, one thing I would ask the reporter is like, because they're pitching a story. I think the hallmark of like a boring NPR story is it tells you something you already know. Like, it kind of beats you over the head with, like, did you know racism is bad? Did you know stuff is <laughs> yeah. sexist? That's what I mean. It's it's really boring. Like, who yeah. cares about this? Who wants to keep reading this? Well, so, like, a question I would ask reporters is, like, what were you surprised to learn in the course mm-hmm. of your reporting? And if you can't answer that question, what's the point of your story? But that's, like, so much of, like, NPR stuff right now is kind of repeating. The, they're all covering the same thing. No one is pitching, like, new ground. They're all kind of slaves to messaging and this false belief in mind control. But then even like the sub stacks, like the independent voices, I don't think are a solution because you'll end up getting like a thousand different voices 
that are all different shades of whatever because they all have their own biases. They don't have like editors that are fixing their stuff. So I feel like it'll make it easier for people to curate their own realities. Like you'll listen to, you'll, I'll read these three Substacks, I'll listen to these two podcasts, I'll watch, you know, this one YouTube channel. And like, yeah, you're only watching independent creators, but you're only watching the ones that agree with you. Mm-hmm. And the creators themselves have an incentive to cater to the audience that they build up. They do. Yeah, I mean, you see with like blocked and reported, like in some ways, like they, they, they have a risk of becoming beholden to their own like listeners. Mm-hmm. They like, you know, attract the same type of people. It's all, I think it's apocalyptic, honestly. <laughs> because it's then when you have like a fraying, uh, so you have like thousands of independent voices on these that are basically growing out of this distrust in traditional media. Now you have like thousands of like little independent voices. The thing about them is they're much easier to buy, and you don't even have to actually buy them. You can just amplify, like, oh, this guy agrees with me, this podcast agrees with me, this subject agrees with me, this one. They just happen to, you know. They don't know you. You just amplify them. You give them mm-hmm. money. I think like reality is going to be much more easy to purchase. Uh, like for your own self as like a, a member of the audience? No, like for Monsanto or like the DNC or anybody. Like if you can just think, if you have like, like that's why the Substacks, people look at them as a solution to legacy media. And I think not really. Because I think eventually they will just become so many splintered voices that are easy to be like amplified in a curated way by folks who have like some kind of ideological goal. I mean, it wasn't that true with the old establishment. It was tougher to, because it's like how much money does it take? You have to be a billionaire. You have to be literal Jeff Bezos to buy the Washington post, mm-hmm. but like to put ad dollars behind like your podcast, for instance, like, I don't know what your audience is, but you know, I imagine like if someone just starts, you know, puts like 50 K behind like your podcast, starts pushing it out more even without talking to you, like they're just amplifying it because you happen to agree what you're saying naturally already aligns with a goal somebody else has. And they find enough people like you across different platforms. I said, you know what I'm saying? Which mm-hmm. you couldn't do with legacy media because they're, they're just too fucking big. I'm, I'm not totally sold that it's a new paradigm, but I, I understand the concern that you're outlining. All right. So you were at WHYY and you got fired. Mm-hmm. And was that, was that a surprise? Yeah. Okay. It was, uh, I mean, so basically they were like some months beforehand, somebody was complaining about my standup to management in the sense that like, they were like, how come he can do standup, but he can't come into the office? Like it was one of those things. Cause I have a work from home accommodation cause I have uh, multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does, how does that affect you day to day, by the way? Uh, it's honestly more, it's just terrifying. It's like a very, I'm doing very well. I'm like responding to treatment. When it was very bad, I couldn't walk. Like I had trouble walking. Is that from fatigue or lack of coordination or what? Uh, the best, I guess lack of coordination, honestly. It's like the, yeah, it's lack of coordination. Like my, uh, I don't know, it's hard to tell. It, it's hard to describe. It's like I had to, when it was really bad, I had to really concentrate on like walking, like the actual movement of like putting the, and it just wouldn't, it's, it's a very weird sensation. Like you're, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a broken telegraph or something. You can, it's, it's difficult to describe, but um, I guess lack of coordination would be like the best way to put it. Like the signals just don't get there or they get there wrong or they're not as strong, you know? Okay. And you're beholden to treatment. You're reliant on this treatment to keep you operating yeah. normally in other words, right? Sure. Yeah. 
So you had like a special, I guess, exce- exception to working from home and you, you believe that that led to some envy from coworkers? Yeah, somebody, well, I, I don't know what happened. So this is like my like first inkling of like, oh, someone's upset I'm doing standup was like in November of last year. And it was, you know, in my mind, I thought it was like somebody being petty and like maybe they don't understand like what MS is, you know? And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, he's not in a wheelchair. Like, how the fuck, you know? But then, so then in January, uh, it was just like a surprise meeting. Like, I just got an email that was like a Zoom invite to like discuss a serious personnel matter at 11, like yes or no. And nobody knew what it was. Like the, I got a text from like the the union steward that was like, you got to call the union. We think this might be like something, this is very strange. Mm-hmm. And then we went to the meeting and it was like, a Zoom meeting, it was like my boss, a vice president, and the union steward. And then they had my boss read like this statement of like for violations of egregious violations of WHYY values, like your uh, termination effective immediately. And uh, they didn't, they didn't, they took like no questions, no nothing. It was just the end of the meeting. Mm. Uh, and then I checked to see like I had just taken like my dose for the month. I take like a monthly, like it's just drug that it's like an auto injection type thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I had, I had either just taken it or I was about to take my dose for the month in like two days. And I called the pharmacy to see if I could get another one. Because so I was like, oh, maybe my health insurance still. And like, no, nah, it's $10,000 to get another dose of this stuff. Uh, like that's how, I don't know, that's how sudden it was. It was zero warning, kind of like all at once. Uh, and then you uh, you started collecting unemployment, right? Yeah, um, it took a few weeks um, just because of the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I applied immediately, and then I think like maybe ten, eight to ten weeks later, it started. Did that help uh, with uh, your medication? Oh no, it wouldn't come close. I the only thing I lucked out is I went back to the VA hospital, and they were like, apparently MS runs in veterans. It's like unusually high in veterans, which I didn't know. So it's That's like, uh, yeah, I think it's because our, I don't know, dude, I'm pretty sure like I got a vaccine for like anthrax at some point. Like they just shoot you full of stuff and I think it fucks up your immune system. But so it, it is actually one very lucky thing is like MS is considered service connected. Hmm. So I get free care and actually I just get, I get money from the government every month now. Oh, but uh, no, but just my day to day expenses, the unemployment was helping with that. And uh, so you were collecting for a while. When did you find out that WHYY was going to contest your unemployment claims? Uh, it must have to been like, mm, I think it was in April. Like I okay, started. So that was several months after. Maybe the date was, maybe it was March and then the date was in April. Okay. Did that come as a surprise? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't have the dates right. Cause the hearing was on the 31st. So maybe it was in April that I got word. Okay. So the theory, the theory behind why WHYY would contest your unemployment claims is that they pay an un- unemployment compensation premium to the state of Pennsylvania. And you, as an additional claimant, would raise their premium. That, is that your understanding as well? I don't, I don't know if that was it. I think it's... So, like, I got, you know, I got fired, and then we had the second meeting where they, like, explained why, because they didn't do any, any questions or anything, didn't, like, take any questions. So it was me, the lawyer, two vice presidents, and they were basically like, oh, you're fired because, like, you're reals. Uh, on Instagram, are racist, sexist, mm-hmm. homophobic, transphobic, whatever. 
when a news organization calls you that, then it's it basically becomes like a kind of holy war at this point against you. Like you're deserving of nothing. And so they have to kind of prove like you're, it's kind of all or nothing at this point, you know, yeah. for them. So they they have to basically like now they're in a position. Oh, why would you allow this racist to collect unemployment? Why would you collect this sexist to collect unemployment? Now they have to kind of like by their own like dogmaticism, it's it's become medieval, you know. Yeah. So I reached out to them for comment uh, like more than a week ago. I because from my understanding, it didn't make sense to. Financially, if you assume that they weren't driven by this holy war motivation, it didn't make sense for them to contest your unemployment because there might be a raise in like the premium that they pay, but that's not, that's nothing compared to what you get. So it's like them incurring like worst case scenario, they're incurring a small monetary hit and you would be losing a big time. Right. Yeah. So that didn't make sense. So I asked them like, what exactly, how does that work? Because you brought in two lawyers you got like the vice president and like other managers to take time off to prepare with the attorneys for a testimony and then for them to appear for like the physical in person for the hearing. So I said, this doesn't really make sense if your goal was strictly avoiding the monetary penalty. Yeah. And I, I asked them, like, it looks like you're this was like driven by a grudge, which is your theory as well. And that's also my assumption, because, of course, like they're not answering my questions. They said we don't comment on personnel issues, which is bullshit because they do comment on personal issues when they're in a hearing uh, talking about all the, all the bad things that you did. Uh, So they kind of like do it selectively where we're going to talk shit about Jad, but then if you ask us any follow-up questions, we're going to say that we don't comment on personal issues. So I told them straight up, like this seems to be my conclusion based on my, on like what I see. And of course they haven't responded. So, you know, the floor is yours. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to accept your conclusion on this. Well, I mean, I don't know. One thing I was curious about is like, in terms of cost, I tried to figure out like how much would it cost to hire these people, like these two lawyers that they brought in. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know like what the industry rate for these types of hearings are. I rarely see lawyers for uh, for unemployment claims because they tend to be low stakes, and most states they allow non attorneys to represent the the hearing. Like you can appoint a representative that doesn't have to be an attorney because the the amounts are are small. You don't necessarily need a full fledged lawyer for that. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it could be uh, on their part, like they could be strategizing because we have another hearing on on August twenty fourth, which determines whether or not I get my job back, whether or not I get back pay, whether I don't know if there's other damages or whatever. I, I, I have no real idea, but it's just much more at stake in mm-hmm. this hearing, and so I think it could have been strategic in that, like they have to prove I was fired for cause. And that yeah. cause is like racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera, which is why they made a judge. This is an important part of the case. They made a judge watch 45 minutes of my stand-up. Yeah, I listened to the hearing. You sent that to me. It was, it was really entertaining. The lawyer was just kept stepping on so many rakes as he was trying to make his point. Like, sir, did you call like women pussies? <laughs> now, in your mind... It was okay to refer to women as pussies? I don't think I did that. You didn't do that at all? In any of your social justice, uh, I'm sorry, in any of your videos that we played here today, that you heard today, you didn't refer to any women as pussies? I don't believe so. No. So is your testimony that you've never referred to a woman as a pussy in any of your social media posts? Referred to a woman as a pussy? Yes. No. No. And 
And by the way, you were here to hear the seven vi social media vignettes we played of your stand-up comedy, correct? Sure. I mean, I sent the word pussy, but I didn't call a woman a pussy. That's a bizarre thing to call a woman. So, in your mind, it's okay to refer to a woman as a pussy, but not call a woman as a pussy? I did not either, sir. You, you can play the tape back if you're... Well, I'm asking you right now, I have a chance to ask you questions, sir. Is it your testimony that you never referred to a woman as a pussy in any of your social media posts? Yes, you're welcome to play them if you think I've called a woman a pussy. And you would agree with me that referring to a woman as a pussy is inappropriate. Agreed? Mm. Yeah, I mean, if it's, yeah, if it's like your, it depends, if it's your friend, sure, you can, whatever, you can I'm that. asking you, is it okay to refer to a woman in a social media post as a pussy? Yes or no? It depends. So, so it might be okay and it might be not okay. Is that your testimony? Depends? Context. Depends on context. Okay. And also, I did not call a single woman a pussy in any of those videos. Okay. Um, and in your mind, referring to a woman as a pussy is okay or not okay? Well, Again, relevance. Well, but that's been asked and answered. He said he didn't use it in that context. Yeah, it actually hasn't been asked and answered. That's why I'm asking it. Is pussy referring to a woman's vagina? Is that what your understanding of the word is? Yes. And is it appropriate to be... Do you feel... Let me ask you this. Referring to a woman as a pussy, is that denigrating to women? Again, I'm not sure what the relevance of this question is in that I didn't do that. You didn't do that at all in any of your social media posts, right? I used the word pussy instead of vagina because it's a comedy show and using clinical terms would be strange. Just so I'm clear, when you refer to women as pussies, are you also standing up for feminism? What a bizarre hill to die on. Is uh, there's a thing? Hang on. I guess that's an objection to the question and it's sustained because again, it mischaracterizes what he said earlier. Very, very funny. <laughs> but like, I think they were, and this is like, it goes to like how insular these people are. They expected this judge basically she's a Philadelphia like unemployment judge. Like she hears the real world. She's not dealing with like Oberlin cups. Like she's dealing with like proper like people who live outside this bubble. They expected her to be like horrified by the stand up comedy and immediately agree. And I think they were stunned when the lawyer was like, No, what, what are you talking about? Or when the <laughs> when judge, judge was like judge was like, This is obviously like satire, it's obviously like not discriminatory. Yeah, that makes sense that they would be so isolated, like the the management, but it it doesn't make sense that the lawyer would be isolated or similarly isolated if that's like within his practice area. Cause uh, myself, uh, I work as a public defender and that's probably like the best immunization from being isolated. Cause I have to deal, I have to represent criminals yeah. who are almost always homeless, drug addicted, or have mental health issues. And I have to try to convince a jury of random Americans chosen from randomly. Like I, I can't assume any particular background. That's true. Like, I, I mean, I think these people, like they don't, they feel entitled to like trust and an audience and people like being like, yes, I agree with you because they, they've, that's all they've been uh, exposed to. It's like the same reporters who are stunned when we're like, Hey, this story is very biased. You need to go back and report it. They, I think there's that same disconnect of like when they get into a courtroom and they're like, Oh, to me, this is obviously like a mortal sin. And then a judge is like, no, what are you, you're fucking insane. I think the lawyers, this is my theory. I don't know this about, for sure, but I think Dwayne Morris, the firm they hired, they hired them as outside counsel. 
So like WHYY has their own lawyers. Mm-hmm. And I think their own lawyers were like, don't do this. It's not unusual for, for uh, places to hire outside co- counsel, even if they have general counsel. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking like uh, outside counsel wouldn't really care. Like they're just, they just care about money. Like they don't care if like the case is winnable or not. They get paid either way, right? Right. So I think he's like, he's like in a position where like, all right, yeah, this is not, this company's definitely going to lose, but whatever. I'm going to, it's my billable hours, you know? Because what's interesting is like, you know, I put out, I don't know if you've seen a video, like I made a video using the audio of like the hearing. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And of course, Blockchain Reported has it. And then shortly after that, I got one of the vice presidents from the company reached out through the union lawyers asking like how much, like what does Jad want in order to avoid another hearing? (laughs) What? What would you be giving up? I mean, I think they're like, how much money do you want to avoid (laughs) another hearing? Because I think like the, so outside counsel, okay, like now they, they, they well, know. Hold like, on, how would you avoid another hearing? Because they're the ones that are filing the claim against you, right? No, so it's not for unemployment. This is for my reinstatement. This is like arbitration between like. Oh, uh, I see. Right. So they're like, what can we do to avoid having this hearing? I think because they know I'm going to make it public. Like all the nuts, like completely intellectually dishonest, like goofy, did you call her a pussy bullshit? Yeah. They know I'm going to get all that audio and put it on Instagram or give it to podcasters, you know? Mm-hmm. So now for outside counsel, they're like, fuck, I'm going to be embarrassed. That's my thinking of like, they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to be part of this. Like if this is going to be public, I don't. Right. That seems like a good weapon in your end. I mean, but yeah. it's also self-inflicted, right? They're the ones acting like idiots uh, on this front. They just don't want people to know about it. Yeah. I mean, I think for like lawyers, there's something that like, I think, so say you're on like the losing side of an issue, like you have to be intellectually dishonest in order to try to win. Like you have to kind of act stupid. Not, well, maybe not always. I'm on the losing side of an issue all the time. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess specifically in this case, like the lawyer's job is to act like stupid and clutch his pearls and be like, you know. That's one tactic to be like performatively outraged. It's not always effective. And especially in this case, it was not, it was like anti-effective. Yeah. But now, but it's like, it's embarrassing if the public sees you doing that. Like if you do it in a courtroom and you play stupid for an hour and you win, nobody sees it. But if you like play this fucking idiot, that's like, doesn't understand obvious jokes. Mm -hmm. And then that, that gets made public. Then like you're, then people believe that you're actually a fucking idiot. Yeah. You know, I understand. So at this point, do you want your job back? A hundred percent. Dude, I want, I'm of the mind right now that like somebody has to like take these places back from extremists because what, what's going on now is like, I don't know if it can be fixed. I don't know if like the positive feedback loop is like left the station in terms of like who wants to work at these places, but you have a lot of people who are just scared and keeping their heads down. You have a minority of extremists who are very loud. And I think I'm in like a position to, I'm in a unique position to fight back. So I think I have to. So, okay. We just talked about like how to fix journalism. So you see this as part of your quest. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not realistic about, I think just because of the pipeline of who's becoming a journalist is fucked at this point. And I don't, I don't have eyes on that. I don't know who's going to grad school. Maybe things are corrected back to like the post Trump years. But I think, if more, because there's journalists all over the, the country that see like how insane and how biased news organizations have gotten, but they don't want to speak up because 
it's so easy to weaponize intellectual dishonesty against someone mm-hmm. and be like, oh, you're anti-anti-racist? That means you're racist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, dude, I'm lucky. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a white dude. If I was a white dude doing this, it'd be harder, unfortunately. <laughs> like, I totally feel that. <laughs> I, I feel like I get away with much more shit because I'm not white. <laughs> I mean, it's true, but it's like, the, you know, the white dudes who are like, you know, real, real deal journalists, white women as well, can't really, I don't know, man. There, there's a gross racial dynamic, but it exists. And I feel like, uh, I don't know, I'd be like a total pussy if I didn't fight back. And also, again, dude, same reason I tell people I'm Muslim, even though I don't give a shit, just fight. You know? Yeah, yeah, I get that. All, like, fuck these motherfuckers, dude. Like, the, the shit I sacrificed <laughs> to be a journalist would, like, destroy these fucking pussy executives. And, like, yeah. my like mind frame right now is, like, these are extremists. No quarter for extremists. They get no, there's no, like, accommodation, like, I'm going to just address them as the Taliban, essentially. <laughs> That's very appropriate. That, like most of the people that were interested in your story, uh, like Blocked and Reported and, and this podcast, The Bailey, they're not part of the mainstream. So has that been the case? I know you, you had a Philadelphia Inquirer story, but besides that, who's like reaching out to you and, and expressing sympathy? Nobody. It's, uh, I mean, the issue is like it, even the Philadelphia Inquirer, like, bit of insight on that is like the reporter wrote a story that had much more detail about what happened and kind of like how fucked up it was. And then he was quote instructed by an editor to change the focus. Mm-hmm. And so then it became like a weird contrived like trend piece about like journalists balance or about uh, comedians balancing their day jobs with like online stuff. Yeah, it did read weird. Uh, I can link it to the show notes. It, 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 you couldn't, if you read it, you wouldn't really understand what the issue was. It was like, oh, you shouldn't be a comic and a journalist at the same time, which, and it didn't really explain why, why that was in conflict. Yeah. And that's because he wrote one story and then was told change it. And I think it's because, yeah, it, you know, it goes against the reality that a lot of people want on the left, which is that like when people get canceled, it's because they deserve it. When people lose their livelihood, it's because they deserve it. Right. And then this is one of those situations where it's like the insanity of it is like distressing. I mean, it's the same thing of like when, you know, this reporter covered the, the, the hospital for the poor closing and they found out this fact that, oh, it actually saved lives. That's distressing to them. And so they, they disregard it. Like they don't lean into reporters today. Don't lean into discomfort. Like if something you learn something you wish you had it, it's just not the story. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've seen that. So uh, I guess final question, did, did this whole saga change your mind about anything? I think it changed my mind about like, I, you know, during this, I used to kind of be of the mindset, like to try to like gently persuade people about like bias or to like call it out in the nicest possible way. Like it's like this compliment sandwich, like this is great. And this needs some work and this is also great. And then you say your criticism. I think I, I think we need to speak plainly. I think we need, as journalists, we need to be like, this is bias. You're bearing the lead. You're missing angles. You're not, this is propaganda. This is messaging. This isn't journalism. And I think we have to like call extremists extremists. Like I'm tired of like, oh, this is wokeness. This is just, like wokeness is fucking tweeting Black Lives Matter. You know, that's wokeness. Who cares? Who gives a shit? Cutting off someone's healthcare without warning over jokes, knowing that they re- rely on that healthcare to walk, is extremism. 
It's they're like the Taliban, but pussies. Yeah. So I asked this, uh, I said from the standpoint of, because WHYY has like a lot of flowery pros about how they're in favor of equity and blah, blah, blah. So I asked them from the standpoint of economic equity, does WHYY have any internal policies or guidance for when it decides to contest a former employee's unemployment compensation, especially when it implicates uh, healthcare access? Yeah. I think that's a fair question. And of course they haven't answered it. Um, I agree with you with speaking plainly. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it accurately portrays the issue if you just say it's extremist, because a lot of things just get labeled as extremist when they're like too far outside of the mainstream. And this is a word used by uh, what you would like the subject of your ire, like NPR reporters right. would just say, this is an extremist position and they don't explain why it's bad. They just want you to infer that it's bad because it's extremist. I guess so. But I think there's no acknowledge, And there is like, I think there's too much like calling things extremist when they don't agree with it, but there's no acknowledgement of left-wing extremism. Yeah. There's no, it just doesn't well, exist. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. There's like less of a, a desire to call it out. I, I would just prefer like a different word. I guess that really captures it. Right now, there's a lot of slipperiness with language where we just say, oh, like it's wokeism out of control, cancel culture out of control. But we don't really have, I guess, like neutral or at least agreed upon terms that that you can use to point to the phenomenon. I guess, I mean, this is why I keep like referring to the Taliban is it is also, not only is it extreme, I mean, when I say extreme, I mean that like vast majority of people disagree with you. Like the room full of people laughing at my jokes are are not racist, are not like homophobes, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe like more than extremism, I think the problem is dogmaticism. Okay. Like, because they're sort of looking at this almost religiously. It's like, oh, he said pussy, he said this, never (laughs) mind context, you know? It's like he took the Lord's name in vain. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know I feel I mean? the same way. I, I remember just like the people yelling at you when you say Muhammad and you don't say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Like they look at you with this ire, like how dare you do something like that? And I, there's the same dynamic and people really get annoyed when I point it out. I say that when I talk about the mayor of New York, dude. Peace and blessings. <laughs> on air again. Yeah, I, I like the idea of dogmatism. I think that uh, captures it very nicely. I mean, because it does lead to extremism and it's, it's very easy to kind of like figure out like, okay, is this based on reality or is this based off belief and like what you wish reality was? Yeah. All right. I uh, think that's the time. Anything else you wanted to say? No, I appreciate you uh, making the time. There's so many people didn't make time to like talk about this kind of shit. And if anybody's interested in my standup, it's, it's Jad Slay on Instagram. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. It's it's good stuff. I appreciate you taking the time as well to talk to me. And uh, I genuinely wish you uh, success. Thanks, buddy. All right. Ma'asalamu.